This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Greg Quick, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thanks, Cheryl. Great to be here. Well, Greg is in Broome and I'm in Sydney, as you all know, um, so isn't technology wonderful? Even though sometimes I get sick and tired of Zoom, it has really opened up our life, if you like, in terms of giving me access to people like you because did you get a chance to tour with your book or was it kind well, of shut down by then? Well, it was only launched on the 29th of September. Right. So you did. So, you know, it's only a week ago, really. Yeah, right. So it's fresh. No, we haven't had a chance to put a tour together or anything like that yet. And and certainly there'll be some events that we'll run in Western Australia, but uh, getting out of Western Australia is not really an option at the moment. No, it's not. It's Mm. a whole new world. Okay, Outback astronomer Greg Quick grew up in southern Western Australia. After working on cattle stations and sleeping outside in a swag, he became fascinated with the stars and planets. Greg bought a book on astronomy, then saved up for his first second-hand telescope. Now he runs astronomy tours from Broome, is one of Australia's most engaging astronomers and goes by the nickname Space Gandalf. Is that right? Uh, Space Gandalf, yep. Yeah, Space Gandalf. After appearing on the ABC Stargazing Live, he became an overnight celebrity. He also starred in Stargazer's Guide to the Cosmos, in which he took viewers on the ultimate guided tour of the southern sky, revealing unseen connections between the everyday world around us and the stars above. I mean, it's just so intriguing. I know very little about this subject, but I've always been very interested and interested. So when I picked up the book, I thought this is, I've got to talk to this guy. So here we are. His book is, Is the Moon Upside Down? A Quick Guide to the Cosmos. And it answers all the questions you never knew you wanted to ask about the night sky. So firstly, um, with our podcast, it's called The Stories Behind the Story. So we want to know how you came to really having a conversation with me. So how is it that you got to writing this book? Well, it's a book that I've been asked for for the, I've been running astronomy tours for 26 years now. That's all I've done wow. for a living in that time. And right from the beginning, I was asked for a book because I seem to share things with people that you can't really get from academia. Mm. And I guess I learned that because the, the way I learn is by watching and figuring things out. And I figured out a few things about the stars that I thought everybody had figured out. And then I'm talking about these things to some people, you know, some some things that have been really powerful in my life and sharing some of these things with people thinking they would have been through the same things. And basically they told me I should keep talking because they'd never thought about it like that before. So the book, you know, I guess it came about over, I, I guess I started writing it probably 10 years ago. You know, it was a, a way of writing down the things that I spoke about anyway. 
a friend of mine, Peter Birch, was the second in charge at the Perth Observatory for 30 years. And when he retired, he came and worked with me. He, he was always a great supporter anyway. And one of the things he asked me one night, he said, Quickie, who wrote your script? And I said, Peter, there's no script. I'm just talking from my knowing, you know, from what I can see. And, and I, I seem to be able to show it to people in ways that they can see it too. So, you know, it, it's a matter of leading people to having their own insights because, you know, I have no real attachment to anyone believing anything I say. But if what I say triggers their own insights, then I've done my job. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. In, in coming to write the book, I mean, that was, uh, you know, well, I, I really enjoy talking to a live audience because you get the feedback, you get direct feedback from people, and that's what I do. But when it came to writing a book, I knew that I was writing for readers rather than somebody who I was there with. So that was just a, you know, a subtle paradigm shift for me, which um, I, I really enjoyed that process too. So tell me, where did the love of the sky start? I guess why, when and where? Go back to how, sure. to, to how you came to be an expert on astronomy. I guess I've always just been fascinated with everything. And for me, the stars are just, just a part of everything. And, it's, and it just happens to be that part of everything that I started to talk about that people want me to talk about more. But, you know, I've, I've got wide interests and, and the stars are just one part of that for me. Was it that you just were gazing at the sky at some point and thought, well, this is really interesting? I mean, what is this yeah. what you thought you were going to be when you grew up? No, not a chance. <laughs> I had no idea yeah. that I would be doing astronomy for a living. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd always been interested in it. But, yeah, I, I spent a lot of my life living out of a swag, and I still do. You know, the Kimberley really lends itself to a, a swag lifestyle where you sleep under the stars. And, it's, you know, I sleep more often under the stars than I do in a house. So initially, when I was doing that, that sort of work out on the cattle stations and in the pearl diving industry as well, you know, I didn't know anything about stars. And I didn't even really set out to learn about stars, but they were there. And so was I. And gradually, we got to know each other is how it happened. So tell me about stars. Tell you about stars. Well, stars are, they're other worlds. They really are. I mean, we live on a world and, and that's everything that we know. And, and for most people, their world is within about 10 feet of themselves. So astronomy is a wonderful tool for stretching ourselves. And for some people, you know, having a grasp of, you know, somewhere distant from themselves, you know, driving to the next town is a, an experience of being on Earth. And, you know, to, to extend that on to, you know, getting a grasp of what the world is, you know, the different countries in the world, the different peoples in the world. And, you know, this planet being a round thing that spins in space is a, you know, it's, I guess it's one of the fundamental things that I share with people is that, you know, we live on a round planet and it turns. And for most of us, well, I mean, we know that. Everybody knows it. I know it. I knew it before. But when I started to experience it, that was something completely different again. And, you know, I guess that's what I share with people today is you know, probably the most profound task I have is putting people in touch with the fact that they're on a planet that's turning and travelling through space. And I put them in touch with that in a way that, so that they can see it for themselves. And once you see it for yourself, you can't unsee it and you know that you're on a planet that's travelling through space. So it stops becoming a, you know, a piece of intellectual knowledge and it starts to become something that How is a deep part of yourself. How do I show people? It's pretty easy, really. 
like I had a group of people out last night and the first thing I do is I set them up, you know, I introduce them to some of the stars that we can see. We name them, point them out, you know, and I keep on coming back to those same stars so people by the end of the night have got some idea of, of what they're looking at. But also we have a look at the positions of those stars at the beginning of the night and then again at the end of the night and in a two-and-a-half-hour show, there's enough movement of the Earth turning for it to be very obvious, you know, not just that we are turning but also around which axis we're turning because, you know, here in the Southern Hemisphere we've got a point of rotation in the southern sky that we call the South Celestial Pole and the word celestial simply means in the sky. So it's a point directly above the South Pole on the Earth. So if we can find that point in the sky and watch ourselves turning around that point, there's something really profound about that, that, you know, it just always manages to capture people and, and it's something that once they've seen it, they know it for themselves. So this is uh, probably a very simple question, but say, for instance, I'm in Sydney, so I hardly see any stars. You might see sure. one. Yeah, you don't see that much. So I can yep. imagine in Broome the sky is full of stars. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got it pretty good here in Broome. We get something like 300 clear nights a year. Yeah. Um, you so know, how it's many stars also... do you see? Thousands. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole sky has got about, you know, believe it or not, it's only got about 3,000 stars in the sky. Right. So at any one time, you can see half of those stars. Oh, wait a minute, maybe it's 6,000 stars. So at any one time, we can see 3,000 stars. But it's not as many as you might think it should be. Right. Okay. Although if, if you add in a pair of binoculars and start looking at the sky, which I highly recommend, you're going to see hundreds more stars than you can with your own eyes. Even in Sydney? Well, yeah, even in Sydney. I mean, you yeah. do have the air pollution problem and the light pollution problem there. Yeah. But I spent some time on the northern beaches of Sydney last year yeah. and it's actually been declared as an urban dark sky park up at Palm Beach there. Oh, okay. Okay, I didn't so know that. you can see the Milky Way from Palm Beach. Yeah, wow. It's, it's a pretty, you know, it's a great stargazing location, you know, for a city environment. Yeah. Okay, so what is the question you, what is probably the most common question you get asked? Oh, well, you know, some of the simple ones like what's a meteor? Or, you know, what's a shooting star? Because often we're dealing with people who've never seen one before and, you know, pretty much on every show that we run, we, we'll get at least a handful of shooting stars or, or falling stars, which are more correctly meteors. And these are Can things that Can you describe that, are, that to me? Yeah, well, it looks like a star that's streaking across the sky. Mm, and there's something... Of, you've seen it? Yeah, great. So, what yeah. colour was it? I think it was just the same colour as a star, I think. Yeah. Well, they can yeah. be. They certainly it was can be. a cloudy grey colour. Well, I've, I've seen them in every colour. Right. Okay. Wow. I and it depends what's in, you know, what's made. Because what you're seeing is a little piece of rock entering the Earth's atmosphere going so fast that it burns up as it comes through so the So is it a rock that's fallen from one of the stars? No, it isn't. It's, a long, it's very, very close to us compared to how far away the stars are. Right. You know, it's actually in, our, in the Earth's atmosphere. So when we see a shooting star, it's only about 100 kilometres up. And it oh, was, I forget how long ago it was, but it's not that long ago that we discovered that. And we called these things meteors because they're meteorological, or in other words, in our atmosphere. I like falling star better. <laughs> Me too. I like them. Yeah, for sure. And they're really good <laughs> battling wishes on. What's some of the other questions you get asked? 
Oh, what, what did I get last night? I mean, we run a question time at Astro Tours. You know, partway through the night, we stop and, and answer a heap of questions. And one of the ones that I've had, one of, probably one of my favourite ones is, what do stars think? And that came from a, an eight-year-old. Yeah, so that's sweet. that made me think. I mean, the questions I get really spark me too. And and what do stars think? I think is a wonderful question because, you know, we live in these human bodies on this planet. You know, as a collective, we are humanity. So, you know, we're almost like an organism on this planet, which, you know, you know, we're not separate from this planet at all, even though as humans we think that we can bash it up and do things to it. But, um, you know, I'm pretty sure it's going to pay us back in the best way that it knows how. So, you know, this planet of ours, to me, is a, a live conscious being of which we are cells in the body of. And if we extend that to the other planets and recognise them as live conscious beings too, uh, then we can extend that even further and look at our sun and see that as the centre of our own solar system and, and a, certainly a power source that's, you know, incredibly powerful and powerful enough to drive our whole solar system. Mm. So that being that is the sun is uh, something even grander. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So let's talk about climate change. I mean, how does that impact what you do and what you talk about? I guess climate change for me, I think, I guess is a political thing, and I'm somebody who hasn't got a TV. So I guess I don't take a lot of notice of that aspect of it. But but certainly looking after the earth, I think, is a wonderful idea. You know, I think I saw a, a really cool cartoon a little while ago that talked about what if all the climate change people are wrong and we make the planet better for no reason at all. And I love that because, you know, it's crazy that, you know, if we look after this planet, it's, it's never going to be a bad idea. It's never going to be a bad thing to look after the environment. It's interesting that you say to me you're not political because I think Australia has politicised climate change. But as a matter of fact, it's not meant to be a political subject. It's meant to be how we look after the earth that we're living in. And when you're looking at it in terms of the sky and the survival of stars and, you know, the future, I mean, you know, some people say we've got 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, that certainly has to impact the planet, don't you think, or even the greater solar system, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about that. I think, um, you know, we're, we're going through things here on Earth that uh, probably, well, I mean, they're certainly important to humanity. 
but the planet itself is probably playing a role in that too. And it's probably a role that it may have played many times before. I mean, there's evidence on the planet of many civilizations that have been and gone that we have no idea about on this planet. So, you know, we, we think in our current era that we're the pinnacle of achievement. And I would question that. You know, if we look at the, the timescales that humanity's, you know, our, our known humanity, our historical humanity's been on Earth, it's just a very, very small amount of time in, in the journey that our Earth and our solar system is making through space. Because not only does the Earth turn once a day and then the Earth go around the sun once a year, but our entire solar system goes around the centre of the galaxy once every 210 million years, which sounds like a long time. But we've got some things here in the Kimberley. Uh, We've got the Napier Range, which has got a a couple of iconic locations in it called Winjana Gorge and Tunnel Creek. Now, that Napier Range is a coral reef system that was laid down 350 million years ago. So that's more than a lap and a half ago of the galaxy. So when we start thinking on timescales like that, you know, 210 million years, you know, it, it's not that long at all. It's a journey that we've done many, many times on this planet. So, you know, to think that we've made a, a hell of a mess of this place in the last 100 years is we, we live in crazy times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, and where's it going to go next? I don't know. But do you think others have made the same mistake as we have? Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, sure we're not alone in making mistakes. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I've got nothing to back it up, but it would yeah. seem obvious to me that, you know, well, there there are. There is evidence for civilizations that have been here before and quite advanced civilizations that are, are gone and we know nothing of the people that were there. So tell me one of the favourite things about that you enjoy about stargazing. Because are you learning every single night? I am learning every single night. But one of my favourite things is to stand alongside somebody when they're looking in the telescope for the first time because there's something about their energy which, you know, to see Saturn for the first time in your life Mm. is, I mean, just to watch people's unbelief at seeing how impossibly perfect that Saturn is with its with its impossibly perfect rings as well. So to be alongside somebody, and you know, you can you can feel everything about that person light up when you're alongside them. So that's that's an experience that I'll just always revel in for sure. So yeah. tell me about your television celebrity. Tell me how that all came about. Well, you know, I've been running running the star the live star shows for the for 26 years now, and about five years ago, well, actually, even before that, I've had. A lot of the times I've had people come out and they say, you should be on TV after seeing my show. You need to be on TV. You need to be on TV. And I kind of go, yeah, well, okay. Are you a TV producer? Can you make it happen? In the meantime, I'm going to keep on running live shows. That's but, right, yeah. So, um, you know, and I've had a couple of TV producers come to me and run some pilots and things like that and, and nothing much came of it. But a few years ago, I had a BBC TV producer come and do my tour. He was just on his holidays. He went home to his boss, the series producer, and said, hey, we need this guy on our show. And that show just happened to be stargazing live with uh, Professor Brian Cox. So I get, a, get an email from Paul King, who's the series producer. He said, hello, I'm Paul King. I'm the series producer of you know, BBC Stargazing Live with Brian Cox and blah, blah, blah. And, and we're looking for an, a, a practical astronomer to work alongside him. What do you reckon? So, you know, I get this email and I go, hmm, okay, that's an interesting one. What I'm going to do with that? I'll just have a think about that for a while. 
anyway, I thought about it for a while and, and eventually, um, you know, we exchanged a few more emails and uh, I'd happened to be travelling at the time and, and managed to go to London and meet these guys. Uh, we filmed a few test shots on top of a, the BBC building in London in the rain. <laughs> there was a, a super moon going on, so, you know, I had to talk about this super moon that we couldn't see because it was raining, but... Uh, so, you know, I guess they wanted to see if I was going to freeze up on camera or anything like that. And, uh, but you passed the, the test. Oh, I think I passed it. Must have passed the test. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Do you like yeah. doing TV? Well, what I really like doing is sharing what I, do, what I share with people. Mm. And, you know, I like doing that in live performance. I've really enjoyed uh, writing about it, you know, with the books that I've produced. And when the opportunity came to to reach an even wider audience on on television, well, you know, I, I thought that it didn't really matter what I wanted. It was more important that I shared the things that I've got to share. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't seek out a TV uh, career, but, um, you know, it's certainly something that uh, if I can be of use to my fellow humanity, I will. Yeah, well, I can see that you're very photogenic. Um, or telephagetic or whatever it's called. Now, listen, I want to talk about the moon and it seems to be one of those subjects that comes up every now and then about, you know, um, various wealthy people. I was listening to um, Elon Musk the other day talking about um, getting people up to the moon and he'd already had a list of people that wanted to do it. Talk to me about that. About going to the moon? Well, firstly, the moon and the fascination with the moon and why is it we want to go to the moon? Is it simply because we can or is there another? Yeah. Well, it's the closest object to us, the moon. Um, it's the one that we can see the most detail on in a telescope. I mean, we can see it as a world. We can see craters and mountains and valleys in the mountains and, you know, with a little bit of imagination, you, could, you can picture yourself driving a four-wheel drive across mm. the moon and exploring it. Mm that fascination that humanity has with exploring. How big is it compared to Earth? Uh, the Moon's about 3,500 kilometres across. The Earth's about 12,700 kilometres across. So okay, that so makes... smaller. Yeah. So it's about a quarter of the size or about the size of Australia. Right. Okay. So if you picture Perth to Sydney on the Moon, next time you see it, that's how big the Moon is. All right. Well, back to the Moon. So firstly, it's accessible and it's close. And so... Yeah. What do you think about people wanting to go to the moon? What do you think about that? I think it's quite a, quite a natural thing for humanity, you know, for us to want to explore our environment. And certainly, you know, our local area of space is, is our environment. So the desire to go to the moon, I fully understand it. It's like, you know, wanting to go and explore a desert or a gorge or a mountain. You know, the, the moon's there. And once we develop the flight, which was, you know, only a bit more than 100 years ago, and within about 50 years, we developed rockets and went into space. And again, this is only you know, a bit more than 50 years ago. And then, you know, by 1969, we've managed to, to develop the Saturn V rocket, which took us all the way to the moon. So, the, you know, the technology and the, the tapping into the, the power to do that with our rockets was a, a stage that I guess we got to as humanity. So getting to the moon was inevitable. And but I can what certainly about see tourists that. on the moon? Sure, if they develop a good enough spaceship to be able to take you there and back, and I think that's what Elon Musk is, is that what he's talking about. about now. Yeah, would you be? Would yeah, you do right. it? Oh, look, the mechanic in me would want to know how good the spaceship was. You know, I wanted to make sure they had it pretty much down pat. But sure, I'd go for a ride. 
But I do like it here. Yeah, I do too. Do you know what I wonder? When you look at Everest and you look at all these places that, you know, become tourist destinations, if you like, Mm. I'm just not quite sure what we learn from that. You know, I I get going to the moon and I get it in terms of research and I get it in terms of understanding who we are and how we fit into the galaxy. I understand all that. But once you start taking people up there to have a look around and leave all their rubbish and, you know, which is what happens, I'm probably Mm -hmm. not as convinced. Sure. I mean, there, there are certainly issues. But, you know, one of the first things that happened when the Apollo astronauts left the Earth on the way to the moon was they turned around and looked back and for the first time ever saw the earth in its entirety. Mm. And that was, a, to me, that was a major step for humanity was to see that because, mm. you know, everything they saw in that, that picture, everything that was on the earth is all that we know as humanity. You know, mm. all of humanity, all of history, all of our everything is on this little planet that we live on that until they sent that first Apollo rocket out there, Nobody had ever seen it that way before. So I think that's a great expansion for, for the mind of humanity. And, uh, if, you know, if we can go places and, and include those places in our awareness, then we're expanding not just our physicalness and, uh, you know, we're certainly triggering our, our higher emotions in that as well. And our minds are literally stretching to, to include these places in our awareness. So where do you think the next planet will be that we can get to? Or which planet do you think? Oh, well, um, Mars is definitely a target. It's well and truly on the radar. Oh, is it? Right. Okay. Oh, for sure. There's a Mars society that are very serious about going to Mars. Uh, Mars is a bit of a different proposition to the moon in that it would be a one-way trip. So anyone who's going to Mars is not coming back to Earth. Really? Um, yeah, so they're going to die. They're going to get buried on Mars. That's, that's what Talk to me about why that is. Uh, because getting there is a, a major mission and, well, getting there in the first place is a major mission and getting back is an even bigger mission because to take enough fuel to go there and come back is certainly not in the realms of possibility at the moment. But going to Mars and uh, producing your own fuel on Mars is something that would take time to achieve. So, you know, it might, I don't know, it might take generations to achieve. So certainly setting up a, a community on Mars would involve a community, yeah. Right. And, you know, people breeding and all that sort How of thing. much do we know about Mars? Well, we've been sending rovers there for a few years now. Right. Um, so, you know, we've had a wander around on the surface. Um, we've found that there has been flowing water on Mars at times. There's certainly a lot of evidence to suggest there's still water under the surface. Uh, the polar ice caps contain water. So if we have water which is H2O, that means we can separate that into the hydrogen and the oxygen, and which is basically what rocket fuel is. Not only that, we'll have something to drink um, if we f- find out how we can grow things on Mars, which is another big field of research. I make movies about it and all sorts of things, but, uh, you know, if we want to grow things, we're going to need to water them as well. So finding, if, we have, if we find a access to water on Mars, then that's, uh, that opens the door. So let's say we can get there and we can't come back um, and yeah. we're sending, you know, 50 people up there. Yep. Would you be one of those people? No. No. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> you like Earth too much? Oh, look, I like my motorbikes, I like my surfing, and I wouldn't be able to do any of that on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I'll, you know, it would be an interesting exercise, but, um, you know, I kind of like it here. Okay, yeah. so um, is the moon upside down? 
is the moon upside down? Well, you know, I guess we're going to have to read at least halfway through the book to find that out, aren't we? <laughs> we are. <laughs> we are. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's just, it's such a big subject. I, I, I kind of envy you. I think that you must be learning something, you know, all of the time, aren't you? Every day. Yep. Every day. So for a lay person like me who wants to start in the sky and, and, you know, I've got the book there and I'm going to try and work it all out, yep. what do I need? In Sydney? Or in Melbourne or in, in yeah. the city, firstly, yeah. You need nothing. You nothing don't. at all. No. no. You just look I mean, one of my favourite things to do with the stars is to simply lie down underneath them yeah. and forget that I know anything at all about them. Mm. Because really, I don't. I mean, it, looks, it might look to everyone else that I've, you know, I know a lot about stars, but when I do that, I realise that I, I know nothing. And so lying down under the stars and just letting those stars pour into the top of my head, that's when I really start to learn. You know, you, you lose all your preconceived ideas and you just let those stars in. And each one of them is a, you know, a, a unique individual, mm. just there's like a, you and I. Yeah, there's something very romantic about it. I remember years and years ago now going, I, was, I think it was on Heron Island, and I did a stargazing tour and it yes. really was, I mean, it was very simple and I think it only went for an hour, but um, it was really, um, you did feel like you were in another place because yes. if you look up long enough, you forget everything else around you, don't you? You do, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great thing for everybody to do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't need, need anything. I mean, you, sure, you can get a telescope or, you know, be, even before you get a telescope, I'd suggest you get a pair of binoculars, but mm. you don't need them either. You just simply need to, to go outside and take it in and watch for a while, you know, watch to see if you can notice things moving. Go out again the next night and see if anything's changed. Is the moon there or is the moon not there? Um, you know, the, the planets themselves are really easy to see if you know where to look for them. Because, you know, the, there are five planets that are very bright in our sky. And if you know where they are over a period of time, you know, sometimes even days, but certainly weeks and months, watch those planets moving amongst the stars and in relation to each other. So, you know, that really stretches us out beyond our own little planet here as well. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Now, tell me, do you think, and, right. you know, we'll finish on this <laughs> note, I guess, is there, are there other people like us out there, do you think? Is that, is well, that do, do I think is probably the key to that question for sure. Yeah. yeah, I spent, you know, I spent a fair bit of time with um, Brian Cox over the last few years and he's usually got a team of academics with him as well, Professor Chris Lintott, Dr Lisa Harvey-Smith, Professor Alan Duffy. So there's, there's quite a, a mob of um, academics that I've been thrown in with, which is fascinating for me because, you know, I'm learning things off them. But I'm also realising that the things that I've figured out about the sky, they haven't figured out because you can't learn what I've learned at university. Mm. So Because you're not looking up around. enough. Well, no, they don't. They actually look at computer screens instead. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, I have astronomy students who come to me to learn the sky because they've never done any of it. And, you know, they, they become qualified astronomers without ever having seen the Looked sky. Up. Yeah. So one of the discussions that comes up around the breakfast table, because, you know, we've, we've spent a few weeks together at, at times, and uh, one of the discussions is exactly that question is, you know, is there life out there? And there's this thing called the Drake equation where there's a whole set of parameters that, you know, you, you put a number on each parameter com uh, just to try and figure out how many civilizations there would be in the Milky Way galaxy, let's say. You know, 
which contains something like 200,000 million stars, which is 200,000 million solar systems. So if each one of those 200,000 million suns had, say, five planets, then that's a lot of possibilities for other worlds. So, you know, these guys, these academics, they get this Drake equation and they go, well, it's got to be in this area where there's going to be water, you know, the so-called Goldilocks zone, and it's got to have this and it's got to have that and it's got to have something else. And depending what numbers you put into that Drake equation, you can come up with one solar system, well, sorry, one civilization in the entire galaxy. So when I see them doing that around the, the breakfast table, you know, and usually breakfast is still before dawn, you know, what I like to do is go, hey, guys, come outside for a minute. Mm. Come and have a look at this. And, you know, we stand out there underneath the Milky Way and it's like, you know, do you really think that Drake equation is right when you look up there and see, you know, a whole galaxy full of 200,000 million other worlds? Mm. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying here is that I love to consider possibilities and to me 200,000 million times five is uh, a lot of possibilities and, you know, I'd be surprised to find that there wasn't life absolutely everywhere. Do you think we will ever know that for certain? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. You do? Yeah, yeah. I think it's inevitable that we'll find these things out. You know, it's, it's a constant search within all of us to to want to know if there's life out there in other worlds and, you know, for some reason at the moment we're veiled from that information. You know, somehow we, we've not, we don't have access to that information but I, I certainly think that, you know, it's something that will, will become revealed in, in good time, all in good time. All in good time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go back to the book. Right. <laughs> I'm so intrigued. I'm, I'm very, very interested. It's called Is the Moon Upside Down? Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and one day I'm going to, uh, to come across and, uh, and take the tour. I, I mean, I just think it would be something that I would love to do. Good one, Cheryl. I can see that you just take it all in for sure. Thank That's you, awesome. Greg. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.